So how much advance notice did you get? Uh, that was probably, Stevie, probably uh, December when I got the call. Oh, really? Yeah. So I got the call uh, late December. And I, I literally remember telling the lady, and, and now remember, this was we didn't have cell phones. This was me going and finding a payphone to call Washington. And I told the lady, I said, um, I want the job, but I have to do the smart thing, and I need to call home and ask permission. <laughs> <laughs> Besides that, I'm running out of quarters. Let's make this yeah. call. Let's go quick. So I, I and that's why you're still married. I said, I will call you back in a few minutes. I'd been married to my wife for 10 years uh, at the time. Of course, as you know, we got married in the middle of the academy. We were uh, on our second son. Um, so I had a, at the time, a, uh, uh, gosh, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And I called my wife and she's like, this is what we wanted. Yeah. So I called the lady back and said, I've gotten permission. She says, uh, you need to be at the Orlando district office on February, uh, two weeks prior to February 17th to start the paperwork. Because of course, back then everything was a, uh, you know, uh, duplicative, uh, you know, uh, form that you filled out with a pen and, um, had a lot of paperwork and, uh, you, you'll start the Academy on February 17th. Nice. And you went up to Quantico for that? I went to Quantico on February 16th on a Saturday, flew up from Orlando, um, and the entire time on the trip, I was like, what am I doing? I have 10 more years that I literally could have been an Orlando cop and retired at 20 years, And uh, but this is the path that uh, I prayed about and God led me to and that I, I felt like I needed to do. So I'm uh, surprised again, I go back to... The time frame of the police academy officially becoming a member of the Orlando Police Department in June of 88. And again, I'll go back to Steve can do that math. I didn't quite get 10 years and I started the DEA Academy in February. But I will tell you that I did retire from the Orlando Police Department with 10 years on the job. Well, with your hearing, I'm surprised you heard God calling you. Did he have to use a megaphone? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he, he did. Actually, Matt Barton calling Matt Barton. <laughs> well, that and a two by four, right? Yeah. No, it was it was very exciting. But Morgan, you asked uh, earlier, you know, your great experience of, of, you know, how did you like the first Academy? Um, you know, as, as many guests on your program have told you, the DEA Academy, when I went through, was 16 weeks there at the FBI Academy during the middle of winter. Um, I'd already been through a 16 week academy. I'd been a cop for 10 years. I'd been a DEA task force officer for three and a half, almost four years. And, and by God, DEA was lucky to have you, weren't they? You show up to class well, they, just like, I, my stink don't shit or my yeah, shit don't stink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I got there and it was just kind of like, I'd already done all that. You know, it was, it was, uh. It, it was a, a, a different feeling and then being there for 16 weeks with two young boys at home and my wife, it was, it was a, uh, it, it was a strain on me. Hey Murph, have you told Matt about uh, your little run in, um, because you had done it too, like you were a good shot and the instructors couldn't care less. Uh, you know? 
I probably told him that, that you yeah. know, we, they start you out the five yard line, slow fire with a, this was, we had revolvers back then. Yep. And I could put six rounds in one hole. Oh, you think yeah. you're a smart ass, huh? You get credit for one round. Yeah. I was, I was really, really good with, I, I, at the police department, my, my, you know, our quals and we shot a lot. We had an indoor range actually at OPD. And so you could go down there and, and, and put pin to primer anytime you wanted. Um, and, uh, I, I same way with a revolver. I started out as a cop as a revolver, and you know I I would shoot a ninety eight a hundred percent every time. I got to uh, you know we transitioned to Sig Sauer's at the police department, um, and I would shoot a ninety six to a hundred, ninety four to a hundred. So uh, I, I was really good with the revolver. Uh, I was really good with a with with a semi-automatic as well, but uh, you know I I, I would I, I I would throw a throw a round or two. Um, carried six hours at the p- police department. wasn't a fan of Glocks, and of course uh, the the academy class when I started DEA and FBI transitioned from SIGs to Glocks, um, and so uh, um, I ended up probably uh, second or third. I think second, maybe out of the out of the fifty folks on the academy, as far as qualifications, um, I just I shot. I was able to shoot for the possible club, and I missed it by uh, one round. I don't know. Did you ever make it, Stevie? I did. When I went back to become a firearms instructor, I shot it and, and made it. Yeah, I, I, that was probably uh, one of my biggest heartbreaks of the of the academy, and 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 what sucked. Of course, at the time, right, we shot from the 50-yard line, which who in the world does that? But we did. And I, I think I threw one round at uh, maybe the seven-and-a-half-yard line. It was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Jerking because that trigger. It, it got good, right? I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh-huh. Yep. And then that one errant round. So, well, let's yep. – Let's springboard from here and talk about because the the one case we wanted to talk to you about it's a very unique one. So it's the uh, and by the way, um, you worked your way back, right? You, you you went to school in Carolina, North Carolina. Um, you, you worked some cases involving that other. You ended up back there as an agent, right? That is correct. And so there's this one case with uh, let's call it the case the case of the concrete body. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, we, we got to come up with the case in the case of the case. It's not like Keith Morrison, the case of the overnight oats, you know, the curious case of the overnight oats. Um, so how did you get involved in this case? Because when we talk about concrete, we're talking about a lot of concrete involved in this case. So how did you get involved in this thing to begin with? Well, so like you said, I was able to, uh, you know, I went back from the academy to Orlando, then transferred to Savannah, Georgia during my time in Savannah, uh, DEA decided they were going to open up what we call a post of duty, a two-man post of duty in Asheville, North Carolina, which is 30 miles from my wife's hometown, 40 miles from where we met each other at Western Carolina. And it was, uh, at that point in time, never wanted anything more but to get my wife back close to uh, her family that she'd been away from for, at that point in time, probably about 15, 16 years now. And lo and behold, uh, I got I got selected uh, along with another agent out of Columbia, South Carolina, by the name of Walt Thrower. Um, and uh, so we we uh, we opened up this two man post of duty. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, we were actually housed 
in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of North Carolina, Asheville Division, in a uh, what used to be their broom closet. And uh, <laughs> they cleared all the brooms and the mops and everything out of there, and they put two pods in there for Walt and I, and and that was our office. And uh, but anyways, we uh, we built this office. And we came in and became friends and started a task force, probably four or five of the best TFOs uh, I've just ever had the privilege of working with. And, and anyways, as, as a lot of investigations started, we started getting information from one of Stevie's old groups, uh, the Strike Force out of Atlanta, that uh, they'd picked up some wire communications and things like that about some big cocaine loads coming into Asheville. And we started, you know, looking into it. And the, the, the story plays out as such is that there was a uh, college professor out of Tucson, Arizona, who had a pilot's license. And I guess he decided to supplement his income. He started flying uh, young cartel members out of Tucson uh, to Asheville, North Carolina, to open up a, uh, a uh, cell in the mountains of North Carolina, and they were bringing in probably 20 to 50 kilos at a time. And um, so we started getting into this organization and um, and developed a lot of... Why why did they pick that area? Was it because of the the lack of uh, a lot of law enforcement? Was it uh, an area where there wasn't any distribution on? So it's like, you know, virgin territory. I mean, why why pick that particular area to expand? Because you got to think a cartel guy is going to stick out. Um, around a bunch of, you know, rednecks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and you're right. And I would tell you this, and I asked that very question, Morgan, I said, uh, you know, why, why here? And one, it was, it was Mayberry, right? You had, you, you just didn't have a lot of law enforcement. Um, you had areas that, you know, I mean, you'd have sheriff's offices and things like that, that would have eight, 10 deputies. Right. So, I mean, you're, you're, uh, you know the 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 chance of you getting caught was was very very thin, and uh, you know these again go back to what we talked about earlier is that you know you get into uh, you know multiple kilos you get into a pretty good drug organization and they're not out there slinging dope on the streets you know they're selling fifteen twenty twenty five kilos at a time uh, to people that they know and they trust and they. And so it's a safer business for them. And it was an untapped market as far as the cartels go, uh, that they were just getting into, uh, you know, getting out of the big cities, Atlanta and Charlotte and things like that, and venturing into the smaller areas where they had a lot of people that, that liked cocaine. What major highways were you next to in that area? What were they? Were they state or interstates uh, that they were taking advantage of? Because you know, obviously, this involves logistics, transportation. You got to be able to move dope in and out or money in and out. Yeah, so I forty runs through uh, Asheville, and then I twenty six runs up through Lower South Carolina, all the way to Asheville. Um, and so you had you certainly had the interstate nexus through I forty. A uh, lot of lot of great interdiction stops. Uh, I know you had uh, was it Tim Cardwell uh, many many moons ago on your podcast and had the opportunity to 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 meet Tim, although he didn't work in our area. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, on this occasion though, the, the, these guys were actually flying it in 
on a uh, a uh, larger Cessna. Um, I can't remember what it was. Citation. And, um, and That's so, a twin engine, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyways, got into got into that, and uh, I, I don't. We did a lot of wiretaps in Asheville, um, and uh, but I don't. I don't remember that we were on a wiretap on these guys, and we were working the investigation with our office and Tucson DEA, and uh, so we were keeping tabs on these guys through both locations. Uh, and really, it came down to you know, kind of as we as we old cops say, the old fashioned police work of a lot and lot and lot of surveillance, a lot of planes up in the air. Um, Doug Witten, if you remember him, Steve from Atlanta, uh, I flew a lot of hours with the with Doug Witten on these guys when they were in town. Mm-hmm. So this professor that's doing the flying of this guy initially to begin with, was was this one of these Walter White breaking bad things where he's like got a problem and he's trying to pay it down? Or is he just he just doing it for the thrill, needs the money? How does a college professor get hooked up with the cartel? This guy was in a uh, he, he was a one of a kind guy. And I, I think that it was some sort of excitement in his life. And he also was was making pretty good money. Um, you know, thousand bucks a kilo plus transportation fees, uh, you know, for the cartel. So, I mean, that guy would fly from, from, um, uh, I think it was Mariana uh, airport outside of Tucson into Asheville and, you know, get his, get his time and his fuel and his hotel room paid for and a thousand bucks a kilo. So, um, uh, he, he was doing it for strictly the money. He had no other ties whatsoever to this cartel. Uh, he wasn't a violent guy. He was uh, just not associated with them in any other way, except he loved flying. He uh, had access to a plane and decided that he was he wanted to get in the drug business. So, how did you first get onto this guy uh, through wires or through an informant, or what? What first led you to this nexus of this professor? So we we got onto to the pilot you're asking about. Yeah. So we got onto the pilot through uh, Tucson. Right, and they uh, they had information on him, and they were flying back and forth. Um, they had an informant out in Tucson, and on one occasion, the uh, the the uh, the pilot was unable to to secure a plane, and so he drove, I don't know, seventeen kilos, I think, out in his BMW, and um, we started pulling surveillance on a ho- on the hotel that he always stayed at in Asheville. And uh, he actually liked the hotel because uh, uh, they had karaoke at the bar. <laughs> we all have our standards, right? <laughs> so he does. So uh, you ever seen the movie Wild Hogs? Yeah, yeah. You remember remember when they're at the the, the festival and the guys standing up doing karaoke? Yeah, you remember that part? Vaguely. There's a bald headed guy doing karaoke. Small, short, dumpy guy. That could be the pilot, <laughs> literally by physical appearance and uh, the karaoke. But uh, anyways, I remember uh, um, we found his BMW. He had, you know, Arizona uh, license plates. It's pulled in the parking lot, the convertible BMW. And uh, back then, of course, you could go in and, and uh, talk to, you know, police meant something to people. And we went to the hotel desk clerk and said, uh, there's a. Uh, the owner of the BMW in, and they're like, yeah, 
and uh, here's a key, and he's in room, you know, whatever, 204. <laughs> and so we went, uh, me and uh, and Larry Sprout was my group supervisor, Stevie. And uh, and uh, Larry and I went, and uh, we were going to knock and talk the guy, right? Because we were kind of running out of options on what was going on on our end in Nashville. And uh, just going straight go there and, and try to to work our way in. and go up and knock on the door and we realized that the door's cracked, right? Door's open and the pilot's in there and he has just gotten out of the shower and he had a, he had a uh, towel wrapped around him and he was, uh, he, he, he was waiting on a lady. And so he had the door cracked. <laughs> so not only did we ruin that for him, uh, but we talked to him and sat there and did what, uh, at least, uh, decent cops do. And we told him that we were on to him and we knew all this stuff that we really didn't. And he was foolish enough to believe us. And he walked outside and turned over 17 kilos to us out of his car. Told wow. us the entire, the entire plan, the entire organization. Um, and, uh, he also said, by the way, one of the, young guys and he confirmed they were young guys coming across the border that were tied to, uh, I don't remember the cartel at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, that they were being supplied their dope by a cartel. And, and, uh, he says, but, uh, one of the guys, and it was only knowing by his name, Chewy, but he's the guy that I mainly deal with. And, um, I still have $32,000 that he left with me that he didn't want the other members of the, his organization to know about. And he says, I haven't seen him in two weeks. And we're like, okay, whatever. But you know, back then, uh, $32,000 was, was quite a lot of money. I mean, kilos of cocaine were probably selling in Asheville for, you know, I mean, $22,000 or so. Uh, at a time. So was he skimming or stealing or what was he doing? Why didn't he want the other guys to know about the 32 grand? I think, I think Chewy was, he was stealing money from the group. Um, and so long and short of this through communications back and forth with Tucson and things like that, I get a call one day from, uh, Steve, uh, McGuigan out of Tucson and he says, Hey, um, Tucson PD just got a call and they have, uh, they've recovered, uh, 600 pounds of concrete and a horse trough, a water trough. And there's a footless, handless, headless torso encased in the concrete. And, uh, I'm like, well, I can tell you he didn't kill himself. So, you know, <laughs> what does this have to do with us? And they said, well, we're just trying to tie the pieces together. And, uh, oh, you mean, just, well, you know, wait a minute. Was that a joke, trying to tie the pieces together? <laughs> <laughs> How many That's pieces very, was this guy in at this point? Yeah, very he, lame was in, joke. Uh, he was in six pieces. So figuratively and literally, you were trying to piece things yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it really didn't mean anything to us at the time, but they, you know, Tucson DEA and Tucson PD, they they had no idea who the guy was, right? They didn't. They, there was no clue. But what they did is they sent they sent us pictures of TPD and the in the uh, corner chipping this guy out of six hundred pounds of concrete. And uh, 
it was, it, you know, as you can imagine, it's, it's a gruesome scene. Um, and so they sent us the pictures and after we made, uh, a number of arrests in these, uh, on these guys, um, Walt and I had very good relationships with the def two primary defense attorneys in Asheville. Uh, they handled the majority of the federal drug cases, if not, I mean, you know, 95% of them. So we had a very good relationship and they, they knew what kind of cases that we put together in our investigative style and that we were, you know, that we did things the right way. And, and so we, we very seldom went to trial with these guys and they, they just weren't rollovers. These were the two heavy hitters in, in Western North Carolina. And, uh, um, and so what we did is I, I would take these pictures during these interviews and I would just, every, every one of these guys we arrested when we'd sit down and interview them and proffer them with their attorneys, as we would get all the information from them about the drug network, I would just simply slide over this manila folder and tell them to open it up. And they'd open it up and start thumbing through these pictures of this body all hacked up. And, they, you know, they would turn their, you know, they would hold their hands up and turn their face and go, oh, my God, what, why are you showing me this? Of course, in Spanish and through an interpreter. And uh, like, okay, well, they don't know anything about it. And uh, on this one occasion, this guy we arrested who was one of the big three out of the organization, this guy by the name of Juan Prieto. He uh, he opened the folder up and he looked and literally started bawling. And I looked at his attorney, Jack Stewart, and I said, Jack, I'm going to give you a few minutes. He goes, yes, please do. And uh, came back in and, and Juan says, uh, we killed him. We killed him. For the 32 grand or something else? 32 grand and just the fact that I'm sure there was other money that he was skimming yep. besides That's the not the only time. Grand. Yeah. 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 And so, and, and Chewy was running his own loads as well. Yeah. And just, to, just to explain to our listeners here, the reason he gave the defense attorney time with his client is because when you're doing these proffers, if they, they have to tell you every crime they've committed, or then you can use it against them if you find out later, but you cannot talk about murder because that's, that's something that does not have a statute of limitations on it. And that takes you to a whole new level. So that's why that was the significance of you giving time with that, yeah. with the defendant, with his attorney before you got into that. Yeah, exactly. And so Jack called us back in and uh, they laid out that, uh, um, you know, the entire, the entire episode of, of, of how uh, they thought that Chewy was, you know, running his own load, skimming from the organization and, you know, as we all know from the violence associated with, uh, you know, cartels when it comes down to them screwing each other over or, uh, you know, going outside of the rules, um, they, they killed him. And uh, <clears throat> what had happened is he had flown, Chewie had flown back in with, with the pilot and landed back in, in uh, Tucson and they picked him up or I'm sorry, they told him they were going to meet him in a neighborhood and uh, they would pick up the money from him and uh, a fellow by, uh, of course, Juan Prieto, who was telling us, and a guy by the name of Francisco Gonzalez Castro. They met Chewy in this neighborhood and Juan told us that him and Frankie already 
had decided they were going to kill him. And uh, Frankie pulled out a silenced 22 pistol and shot him once in the head uh, as they were sitting there talking and he was opening, Chewie was opening the trunk to get the money, shot him in the, shot him in the head and the, in the, uh, I, I'm guessing he held the gun so close to Chewie's head when he shot, it didn't cycle another round. And they, of course, you, you know, you already put a 22 slug into the guy's head and he didn't drop to the ground and die right there. And so then he pulls out a 45 Kimber and uh, shoots him a couple more times in the head. Wow. So l- let me, let me stop you here for a second. Let me ask you a question. Um, were they trying to send a signal? Because you know, you think, you think how many bodies are buried out there. Nobody finds them, right? Why did they go to all of this work with all of this concrete to chop him up? Was that to send us? Is that part of their way of sending a message to the other people? It's like, Hey, if you screw us over, this is what happens to you. Cause otherwise it'd be like, I, I was just thinking, you know, there's a lot of ways for somebody to disappear without having to go to all of this work. Yeah. It, you know, Morgan, it, it, you're exactly right. And I think what happened is they had the plan to kill him and they had no after action plan. They had absolutely no idea what to do. And then they're looking around. Of course, they got a silence 22. It jams or it malfunctions. And then he, you know, Frankie pulls out a 45 and cranks off a couple of rounds. It wakes up the entire neighborhood in the middle of the night middle of the night now they've got a you know they've got a a, a a dead person and they had absolutely no plan whatsoever afterwards this sounds like a comedy you're sitting there you got three you know three hit guys going okay okay now we're going to shoot him and one guy goes then what do we do next and the other guy goes what do you mean what do we do next well we shoot him what do we do with him oh shit hadn't thought about that <laughs> <laughs> they, they had no idea right so they 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 literally load him up um they go to, I think, I, I, I can't remember what uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, I, I can't remember what they, they go and do. And this is, uh, this is Juan telling us, and of course, this is corroborated once we arrest Frankie himself uh, in Tucson a few weeks later. Um, we get the same story that they, uh, they decide that they're going to uh, chop his feet off cut his hands off and cut his head off his body, dispose of his feet in one location, dispose of his hands in another location and dispose of his head in a third location. So hopefully that the police will never be able to identify the body. Um, And so they start cutting the feet and the hands and the head off. Um, and it becomes pretty graphic. Uh, they, they use a machete. They're just going to, they think that they're just going to, you know, cut his head off with one fail swoop. I th- they go back and forth about who's going to do it. Uh, of course, uh, Juan says that Frankie does it. He takes a machete and he goes to, you know, the, the, you know, the body's laying on the, the bathroom floor uh, of uh, Frankie's house. And uh, Frankie takes the machete and, of course, Probably is a lot of things. You uh, you close your eyes before you hit the golf ball, and you slice it really bad. Well, he hits the guy like right across here through the you know the collarbone and the clavicle, and and all of a sudden you know the insides and and they Ugh. they're like you know what we 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 need to be done with this idea. So they finally get his head off, and they decide they you know they were going to chop the rest of him up. Uh, they they just couldn't stomach it. 
So they decided they were going to go, they get this wh horse trough. And if you know what I'm talking about, it's kind of, you know, a water trough. And it's, you know, probably uh, four foot deep. And they go and buy a, you know, crap load of concrete in the trough and See, they start mixing nothing it together. says home project like four guys who look like they belong to a cartel coming in there hey we need a horse trough and 600 pounds of cement well what are you guys doing this weekend yeah exactly exactly so what's funny is so they start laying the concrete or <laughs> laying the concrete they put uh they put some concrete in they put chewy's uh body in there and uh they uh they didn't buy enough concrete so they get about 300 pounds or so, and it's not, uh, Chewy's body's not completely encased in the concrete. So by the time they go and buy more concrete uh, and come back, the first batch has already dried. They pour the second batch. Well, they leave that line in there, right? And so they take, how in the world they got, we even went down as far as literally followed and, and was able to identify the, uh, the Nissan Murana uh, uh, SUV that they rented to, to, to put Frankie's body or uh, Chewy's body out in the desert. They drove out in the desert just, you know, with all their might. And I'm sure, uh, there was other people involved that they never gave up, but they pushed 600 pounds of concrete out into the desert. Um, weeks go by and a homeless person who is out in the desert stumbles across this. 600 pounds of concrete and from where they laid the two layers of course the body started decomposing and draining and and uh that homeless person called tucson police department and that's how the whole thing got uncovered wow you got to think here's this homeless guy wandering around the desert and he says i've seen a lot of shit out here but this is the first time i've seen a horse trough with concrete and if because your first thought is it's like when you see a turtle on a fence post your first thought is how did it get there mm -hmm. you know how did a horse trough with, just like whether he detected the body or not, just the mere fact a horse trough filled it with concrete in the middle of the desert, that that would have you know that would have registered and triggered a call. I thought in any event. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was pretty far out, you know. I mean, and now you know. Granted, if you've, I don't know if you guys have been to Tucson, but I mean, you you know, the desert can be you know, a mile away from downtown, right? I mean, it's just dry. I mean, it's they call it the desert. We're not talking the desert that people march through you know, getting into the country, so to speak. But I mean, it's just, that's what they call the desert out there. But anyway, so they, you know, again, now I go back to sliding the pictures across and, you know, we're like, okay, well, we need to figure out how to identify to make sure this is Chewy's body, right? So where's the hands, where's the head, where's the feet? And um, we actually fly uh, Juan Prieto, Walt Thrower, me, uh, the AUSA at a time, at the time, who was just the greatest AUSA that I've ever worked with, uh, a gal by the name of Jill Rose, who's just a, a rock star. And we fly out on the administrator's Learjet from DEA. They pick us up in Asheville. Uh, me, Jill, Walt, and Juan Prieto, who's shackled up. And, and, uh, it's funny because Walt doesn't fly and he had to take a Dramamine patch and he was, uh, he, he was, he was at Disney world for about four hours, but, uh, we, we land, we, uh, load up with DEA Tucson and, and, uh, Tucson PD and Juan Prieto's like, uh, I'll take you to, to the locations. 
of course, they threw the feed over into some Indian reservation and, and you know, he took his son like, I'm not getting out looking for a set of feet and the briars and, you know, there's coyotes and, you know, I mean, it was gone. He took us to the culvert where he threw their hands. Well, it doesn't ever rain in Tucson, but it had been kind of a rainy season and there wasn't no hands in there. And so then I'm thinking, you know what, this guy, there's an ulterior motive to him wanting to come to Tucson. You know, we got something that's going on. Um, and so his last disetchford, he's like, I'll take you to where the head's at. And he takes us out into the middle of the desert. And I'm like, there's no way in hell this guy is going to tell us four months ago, five months ago, where he buried a head. He literally walked us to the spot and there was no cactus. There wasn't no big oak tree. There wasn't no cross. There was nothing. He took us directly to the spot. And they started digging, and we found Chewy's head encased in about 70 pounds of concrete. And what's funny is Jill Rose was the U.S. The US attorney was marching around in the desert in a $150 pair of stiletto high heels that uh, I, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, but we, uh, we 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 found him. We found wow. him and uh, put some closure uh, to that. Believe it or not, uh, you know, dealt with the family and. And uh, talked with them, and they were very grateful, uh, you know. Um, but anyways, once we found the head, they chipped it out, and we were able to make sure that was him. Uh, TPD did some search warrants at uh, at uh, Frankie Castro's house, and we actually did an operation out in uh, Tucson while we were there and uh, arrested uh, Frankie Castro. Man, sweet. That's so, a good case. Yeah. Frankie showed up in a car, a rental, and TPD SWAT team took him down. And it was really, again, I go back to it very seldom rains there. And they say it never hails. They We had one of the most hellacious hailstorms that day that I'd ever been a part of. And TPD SWAT team, they took him down in the middle of the hailstorm. And they, <laughs> they, they knew he was violent, right? There's no doubt. They, uh, he had his windows rolled down and they tossed two flashbangs in the car with him. Yeah, maybe. Oh, he came out and, uh, he looked like he had, uh, and, uh, so we arrested Frankie. Speaking of having um, hearing problems, future hearing problems. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. They, uh, we finally got him back to Asheville and a remarkable story with Frankie. And I actually looked him up this morning. He, uh, he's due to get out of the BOP in 2034. Uh, but uh, Frankie uh, devised a plan, and he uh, he nearly broke out of the Buncombe County Sheriff's Office jail, which was a multi-story, wasn't some hick town jail. It was a pretty secure location in downtown Asheville, multiple floors. Um, but Frankie befriended a, a fellow inmate, and got the the, in, the the his new friend was released. And, um, uh, I got a call one day from, of course, a, a, a jail snitch. It was over there that wanted to be a snitch. And he says, Hey, got this guy who's talking about breaking out I said, okay, well, who is it? Frankie Castro. And I'm like, Holy cow. I'm the one that put Frankie in jail. Like, what is he doing? He says, well, he's befriended this guy. And the guy is now on the outside. He's helping him break out. 
So we go and track down the former inmate and we interview him and like, hey, man, you getting ready to go back in. What are you doing? He says, I've been helping Frankie smuggling hacksaw blades. And I'm thinking to myself, what? He says, yeah, I've been helping him smuggling hacksaw blades. And uh, but I don't know what he's doing. I'm out. He's in. So finally, we're like, okay, we gotta, we gotta put enough. Oh, in wait there. a minute! So this rocket with- scientist has no idea why somebody would want hacksaw blades on the inside. Well, he doesn't know what he's. He doesn't know when or where right. or what he's doing, right? So he knows his plan is to get out. And so we finally like, all right, we got to go, and we we call up Frankie's attorney. Like, here we go. This, you know, we got to come to an end of this. So we go and get Frankie out, and Frankie admits to us that uh, Frankie worked in the laundry shop, laundry department at the Buncombe County Jail. And Frankie was pulling all the elastic out of the waistbands of every jail uniform that he could get his hands on, that he could get elastic. And Frankie tied hundreds of feet of elastic together. One big bungee cord. Mm-hmm. He cut a Coke bottle in half, and he got double A batteries from his Walkman. So that tells you about how long ago this was. His old batteries. He tied the elastic around his uh, batteries, and he used the Coke bottle as a slingshot. And he shot the battery with the elastic cord tied to it out of a jail cell window that he would sneak up to at three o'clock in the morning with the fact that he threatened the Buncombe County jail guard that he'd have him killed if he didn't allow him to do it, who has been arrested, shoots this battery across the road onto the roof of a b- adjacent building. The ex-con ties together hacksaw blades and Frankie reels them in, and he starts cutting bars. He had cut through three or four actual bars. Now, wow. I don't know what he was going to do once he got there uh, you know, and got the bars off, but uh, this jail guard knew he was doing it, but he was afraid that Frankie was going to kill him. And uh, when we interviewed him, Frankie said his first stop was going to be by Matt Barton's house. Oh. And so, just to say Merry Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's, that's, that's that, uh, caper in a nutshell. But, uh, you know, as I told Stevie many years ago, that was, uh, even I could solve that murder because, uh, <laughs> the way we got on to, to Frankie was the fact that they didn't peel the skew off the horse trough. Uh, and it was still on the container and we were able to track it back and pull video of him and, uh, Juan Prieto buying the horse trough and the, in the concrete. Well, I'm thinking even without the skew, but it's kind of like, okay, when's the last time you had somebody come through here by a horse trough and 600 pounds of concrete? Mm-hmm. Oh, I know the guy. You know, it's yeah. like those kind yeah. of things tend to stick out in your head. Yeah. That's just good. Yeah. Law. That's good investigative work. That is. And I keep yeah. going back to thinking of the guy who had his door cracked, the pilot, thinking, ah, I got a lady coming up. And, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there going, yeah, pal, you're about to get screwed, just not the way you think you are. So let's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cliff Cass, went to, we, we arrested a lot of people in that. And, and it was, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that, uh, the, you know, the, the win was putting a group of cops together, even the fact that there was probably six or eight of us. And, uh, you know, the, the collaboration between uh, multiple agencies and things like that, it was just really cool to, to, to piece that together. And so it was a, 
it, it was pretty interesting. Um, and, um, you know, shows that uh, the relationships and things like that that you can build and across the agencies and, and uh, you know, to, to solve a pretty good caper. Uh, you know, that was probably one of the biggest capers that's been that's been worked in that area for a long time. But uh, that kind of put our, our, our office on the map. And and after that, the, uh, the, the, the office really took off with just the resources and things like that that we were able to do. Uh, and generate from that. It, it was a cool caper. Yeah, Very cool. So I guess when the defense attorney is asking, do you have anything concrete against my client? You can literally say, yes, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> no doubt. It. No doubt. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you know, and I know we're probably running short on time. I, you know, I used to, one of your guests early on was Lou Velozzi. Uh, you episode know, I, four. When I was assigned, I'm sorry? Episode four. That was our first two-part yeah. episode with Lou. Yeah. Yeah, with Lou. Lou and I used to work together in Savannah. Him, me, Randy Beach. And uh, if you remember, you guys talked about, uh, Lou mentioned his uh, silver or gray uh, Camaro that he had that it was all souped up. And uh, and uh, I remember a night we were on a caper and uh, it was a wiretap. And we got, I, I, I drove a black two-door Mach 5 Lincoln. Baddest G-Ride Ooh. I ever had. And, uh, but I got burnt on a surveillance. And so on this, on this wiretap. And so I started borrowing Lou's uh, Camaro to go out and do surveillance. And, uh, but Lou lived literally in a neighborhood behind where these, where these uh, violent Coke dealers, gangbangers lived. So one night uh, I'm in Lou's car on surveillance and uh, one of our guys gets literally burned out, uh, close to the house, trying to get some overhears from the guy's house. And, uh, anyways, I had to, we called surveillance. I drove back to the neighborhood, parked Lou's car in his driveway, got my, got my, uh, Lincoln and pulled through and they saw my Lincoln and, uh, they started following me home. And, uh, another incident where, uh, their end result was going to be, they didn't know I was the police, but, uh, they were they they were they were going to they were going to have their way with me. Jeez, man! Wonderful people. That's, yeah, and if people you know, thought it was fun and games, right? It's not. What you got there, Murph? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I'm gonna give Lou a plug here. He's he's got his own TV show out now. It's uh, Operation Undercover, Guns and Drugs in Carolina. So the I think the second episode is coming out. It's on uh, on Max. So give it a shot. He's the he's the host of the show, and the reason that it rang a bell there because when you mentioned uh, Randy Beach, the first show is filmed in Pickens, South Carolina, and Randy's the chief there. Randy's the police chief there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he is. So good. A uh, lot of lot of Randy and Lou and Matt stories from back then. So oh, good, yeah, good, good people, good times. Yeah, and you but, know, and uh, there's a lot of stuff we can talk about. But let's close out by talking about how your career ended for you because you ended up as the special agent in charge out of Omaha. So you that is correct. apparently, uh, honesty, you know, you know, your ability to, you know, express your opinions at least got you up the ladder to a, you know, a special agent in charge. So you're now the, as we say, the HMFIC for that up there. So um, how long were you the SAC in Omaha before you decided to pull the pin? So I was, uh, I went to Omaha in, gosh, August of maybe 2016, and I retired in. September of 2018. 
And then you decided to go to work for a little um, retail company, right? I did. I did. Yeah. I, I, I went to work and then currently work uh, with Walmart in uh, global investigations. So how did you get a whole, how did you, you know, get onto that kind of work? I mean, obviously, you know, because here's the thing, a lot of times you retire at the special agent in charge, you know, an SES level or something, you, you're directing all the other people. But a lot of times these positions are, it's almost like you're going back to being an investigator again, like you're out, you know, working the streets. So what kind of role was that for you so to go from, you know, the, the special agent in charge now to this group? What kind of work did that involve and what were you doing? So uh, I run a team of seven investigators uh, that uh, look at the diversion, um, to, you know, the total diversion, uh, really the opioid epidemic. And as we, as we know it, and of course knew it many years ago, was pharmaceutical related. Um, Walmart put together a, an external diversion team, and I was blessed enough to uh, to, to be selected for that position. And in that, uh, I got a team of seven investigators across the country. And, uh, the best part of it is there are seven, uh, retired DEA special agents. And so, um, uh, great opportunity, do a lot of great work. Uh, and I will tell you that, um, you know, of course you look at Walmart for being the, the retail giant and, uh, things like that. Uh, global investigations at Walmart uh, is, is a world-class operation. And I say that because we probably have 350 to 400 investigators at Walmart, and you guys have been career cops. You think about how many police departments out there have 350 or 400 people. I would tell you that probably not 90 or 95% of the police departments in our country don't have that many. Here's a stat uh, for you. I got the stat for you on that. Only 6% of the departments in the United States have 100 or more officers. 75% of go. all police departments have 25 or fewer people. Yep. And we have, uh, we have a multitude of investigative teams. We work uh, throughout all of the teams within global investigations at Walmart uh, work very closely with law enforcement. Uh, we work very closely with DEA, FBI uh, on our team, uh, Health and Human Services, just trying to do uh, our part in combating, um, you know, just the, the horrible plight that we're in right now with the opioid epidemic. Um, and so, it, it is very beneficial. It still gives all of us uh, a sense of responsibility and a sense of public service. Um, and it's, it's been a, a great segue, uh, you know, into, uh, as, as you guys have interviewed so many others, you know, you have to leave DEA at 57. I left at 54. Um, and I never had any envision of myself doing anything but being a DEA agent forever and then going and maybe being a police chief or a sheriff or something like that somewhere. Um, but I, I knew when the opportunity for Walmart came about and what uh, this mission was going to be about and Walmart's willingness to inject themselves into this epidemic, into, the, into this problem, um, and put the resources and the manpower uh, into it. Um, and the fact that you get to go to work with seven people every day that I've known throughout my career at DEA uh, is, is really a blessing. Well, 
it's encouraging to hear Walmart making that commitment also. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, you know, I, I will tell you, I've been around to a lot of DEA offices, a lot of the HIDAs around the country, a lot of state police organizations, um, a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, pharmaceutical drug uh, conferences and things like that. Um, there's nobody out there uh, that I think, and, uh, you know, I won't say, I'm sure there, there might be another organization or corporate um you know, entity that has that type of footprint. I have not found them. Um, and, and, and just the relationship that we have with law enforcement is, is truly just one of those things you go to work every day and you, you realize that you have an opportunity to help out and maybe make things a little easier on investigators in a current investigation they might have. Um, and so it's, it's been really cool for the last five years. Well, what I'd like to say is just because we retired does not mean that our oaths ever expired. And you're living up to that that little corny saying that I've, that I've come up with there, right there, just because you're still trying to do things to help the public. And, and there's so many other stories. We could keep uh, Matt on here for another hour talking uh, different stories, funny things, and, and just coincidences and, and crossing each other's paths. But you know, the fact that you're giving us your time right now when you could be spending with your family or at work, you know, we can't thank you enough, brother, for coming on here. Um, love the story about Hooters. It brings back good memories. <laughs> uh, hey, I got one question, though, for you. With uh, You said you work with a lot of different agencies. My understanding, uh, and I actually have a copy of the official MOU that you have with the FBI. Line number one says the FBI does all press releases. Is that true? Of course, no. of course. <laughs> I don't know, not in my, not not for me. Hey, I, I will say this, and I, I I know we're we're over a little bit of time, but I, I will tell you one of the one of the things that uh, one of you know, as you guys have learned, and Morgan, especially you, is that when you're going up through the ranks at DEA, you got to go and do your time in the barrel at DEA headquarters. And uh, I, I, I got to give a plug as much as it pains me, and it will pain you too, Morgan, of giving. Uh, Stevie, uh, uh, tell you what kind of, what kind of human being I think he is. Um, you know, Steve and I met, we get kicked out of Hooters. We stay in touch. Um, and I go back to the pictures that I saw of him on the desk at group 10. I want to let you know, I still haven't made that connection with Steve, even after I met him and we got kicked out of Hooters. I never made the connection when Steve's group, uh, was uh, we were working closely uh, with his group in Atlanta. I never made the connection when Steve went to our special operations division. I didn't make the connection when Steve retired and I went to his retirement party. But I was assigned to congressional and public affairs at DEA headquarters. And I got a call from Stevie one day and he goes, hey, you're in public affairs. I've been gone from DEA for my one year now. And so now I can collaborate with DEA and me and Javier are putting together, uh, you know, we, our story uh, from Colombia has been picked up by Netflix. And I'm thinking to myself, is this Steve? What are you talking about? <laughs> he goes, the Pablo Escobar story. And I said, I'm, I'm not following you, brother. I've been with DEA for 12 years, known Steve for 15 years by that time. I had no idea that the redneck from from West Virginia was the guy in Columbia chasing Pablo Escobar until he called me and asked me if I would help him 
go to the DEA Academy and help train Boyd Holbrook and, and uh, uh, Pedro Pascal with Javier Pena. And Stevie included me in every aspect of that thing. I got to go and spend three days uh, at the Academy. Uh, the worst part of it is because we were within 50 miles, DEA wouldn't pay for me to get a hotel room. And so I had to, I had to bunk with Steve for three days. Oh, I'm not going to tell anybody that. Oh, there's got to be a story and, about uh, that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but I remember, uh, what a great experience. And, uh, and now in the room, and, hold and, on, hold on in the room. Was it a king bed or two queens? We got to know this stuff. <laughs> mm, I'll never tell. Room. Don't we'll ask, don't we'll tell. never tell on that one. Don't ask, don't tell. It was cheaper for a king, I think. But, uh, anyways. <laughs> Uh, but just, uh, you know, to, to, to remember back, Stevie, if you remember, uh, with me and you and Pedro had gone somewhere that evening, I think out with Javier and me, you and Boyd were smoking cigars and drinking bourbon out there at the hotel. And, uh, and it was of course after Boyd got, uh, got killed during the mock, uh, undercover deal there at the Academy where he literally jumped out of his out of his clothes. So that that's uh, coming up on our upcoming our upcoming interview with Boyd. We say I, I set him up. I said, "Look, Boyd, uh, you, me, and Steve. There's there's three things we all have in common. One says, yeah. One is you know obviously uh, Pablo Escobar, right? Um, we we've, we've you know worked around in and around DEA narcos, or we've all been trained by DEA. And I said, number three, we've all been told never go in the house. <laughs> and he had to yeah, think about exactly. it for a second. <laughs> he, it was it was truly truly one of the funnier things I've ever seen in my life. And, uh, but anyways, and I remember Boyd asking me, and I, I don't know, Stevie, if you'd gotten up and taken a phone call or what, but it seemed like Boyd and I were there, or maybe you were there. But anyways, Boyd says, you know, Pedro and I haven't known each other very long, and we've been trying to decide, you know, how we were going to play these characters on Narcos, because they just hadn't, you know, they hadn't been in role very long. And, you know, and they literally had met a couple of times, I guess, you know, out in L.A. or wherever they were at. And they met and they they truly came up with the idea. If you remember, Steve, they thought they were just going to kind of play it like the Andy Griffith show. Right. They were going to play it. They knew Steve was a redneck from West Virginia and they were going to be, you know, these two guys. And the only thing that popped in their head was they were going to, you know, they were going to play it like Barney and Andy. <laughs> And, uh, and, but after their three days at the Academy of undercover deals and out at the, at the, uh, firing range and at hand to hand combat and, and PT and going through the courses and things like that, they were like, this is truly legitimate. This, these guys go there and, and I will tell you second to none and not because I was one, uh, DEA Academy was the hardest damn thing, hardest academy I ever been through in my life as far as the physicality of it. Uh, I, I went in 33 years old, uh, so I, I, I was uh, uh, I was the old guy. But uh, it, it was funny how just three days there, these guys changed their whole persona, and I I, I think they truly killed it. I think they they really really did a fantastic job. I would ask you guys if you um when you talk to Boyd uh tell him uh, the underwear scenes in Justified, he needs to knock that off. <laughs> I haven't seen that. And I'm not sure that I want to now. Go he's he's uh he's in the new season with yeah. uh Timothy Oldflint with the, and he's the bad guy and he walks around in his uh white tidy whiteies a, a great deal. Hey, let me tell you, he's he is uh, preparing to film. He may be doing it right now. 
with uh, Samuel L. Jackson in a movie. And I, I can't tell too much, but his preparation for the role he's playing, I'll just say he's on a hunger strike. He sent me a picture last week, skin and bones. Really? Unbelievable. He did a really what the prep good he's job going through to, to, for this role is just, un, it's above and beyond. He did a really, really good job uh, and, and justified. You should watch it before you talk to him. Well, and really the other thing, too, just what you said there when we interviewed Boyd, and that's going to come out, that'll be our after January 1st, I think it'll be January 8th, that when that episode comes out, it's our interview with Boyd. We actually get into talking with him about that. How much, how much did this affect mm-hmm. you? How much did it change your thought process? How much, when you went into that house, and you ended up getting killed, and it was like, is I don't want to give it away, if that, but exactly to your point, that's where I think the sea change happened in terms of how they wanted to play this. I think part of that mm-hmm. goes back to when Boyd got went in the house when he was told yeah. not to, and yeah. then he saw what it, the real world. Scary. Yeah, I mean, because you know, I mean, and, and to him, he he, they truly got in the role, right? But they had absolutely no earthly idea at the end of the day that people, one agents, go in and do that kind of thing. And if you don't follow the rules, what the end result can be. And I think it really resonated with him. Here's something Murph didn't know, and he found out after he found out with Boyd. So you talk about Boyd getting into the role. You know what Boyd did every day to make sure he looked like Murph? He shaved so that he would have kind of a bald spot where the hairline was receding. Receding hairline. He shaved. He shaved every day. Yeah, no, it, 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 was, it was a real, it was really cool to get to go and do that. But again, I, I, I just, I, I, I close with this, uh, the humility of, of, of Stevie. Um, it, it, I, I never heard once from him. He, he, he never wore that accolade. He never was braggadocious. He, he never claimed to be anything more than a DEA agent. And, and he truly did that when he came uh, from Greensboro, you'd have never known that that guy, uh, you know, a year or two before, uh, was on the biggest caper in the history of DEA and killed the, you know, or was a part of the investigation that killed the most notorious gangster in the drug world. Um, and it, it was, it was truly a, a pleasure. I'm finally, uh, I'm finally glad I figured it out, but I only figured it out after Steve told me and asked me to come and help. Uh, you just you would have never known, and uh, he he's lived his he's lived his his life uh, that way, uh, and been a been a lifelong mentor of mine. So uh, I, I love you, brother. Uh, I, same I here, man. Do and, and proud of you guys and you, Morgan. It's been a pleasure to meet you. I think what you guys are doing is is really cool, and and kind of gets the the stories out there um, that that need to be told. Excellent, damn! I, that's damn. the biggest best send off we've ever got. How much did you? How much did that cost you, Murph? Oh, well, yeah, I wasn't going to say anything. But, bucks uh, later. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, in honor, we're recording this. This will be our final recording before Christmas. But mm-hmm. I don't know if you can see my shirt. Yeah, I have a machine gun. Ho ho ho! From uh, from uh, the greatest from, Christmas movie ever made. Oh, I know I it heart. is. Uh, John McClane. Yeah, yeah, and Hans Gruber. It. You know, it's not yep. it's not Christmas until Hans Gruber, Hans Gruber falls off Nakatomi Plaza. So uh, this right. is day. You know, this is day three. We're counting down. So uh, I've got a couple of pictures showing Hans falling down 
the you know Nakatomi Plaza, yeah. you know, and got to give got to give uh, big credit to Sergeant Al, man. Sergeant Al stopped a terrorist attack. So there you That's go. Exactly right. Great there movie. Great Christmas movie. And we do watch that as a family. That is we that is a family. I, I would have Christmas to say movie. it is a Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie. I'm telling you. Yeah. So hey, well, look. First of all, thank you for what you did. Um, yes. thank, and and look, great work with the Walmart. I've talked to. Uh, I had the chance to meet um, the CIO for the county where. Uh, uh, walking, uh, where Walmart is located there, you know, in Bentonville. So, and, and the, just the things that they're doing to modernize that town, you know, what they're, they're not running they're Walmart's not looking to run and go st- establish their headquarters, you know, some fancy place they are, you know, they are staying there. They've made a huge investment in the town. Uh, I'm just very proud of, of how they've continued to focus on the town, uh, you know, and, and keep their roots where it all started from, you know, they're in Bentonville. I, I will tell you, it's, um, and again, not because I work there. I think you guys have probably seen through that already. I, I, I say what uh, what I feel, and it's a, a very impressive. And, and again, to put 400 people out there, and hey, granted, we're trying to figure out what's going on with the store, right? I mean, the, the stores or the company's job is to make money and, and uh, the collaboration with law enforcement, the things that I go and do, uh, you know, they send me to to present at uh, Narcotics Officers Association meetings. I had the opportunity to go to the Mid-Atlantic uh, Great Lakes uh, Fusion Center uh, in Maryland a couple of months ago. Um, the resources are absolutely tremendous, um, and they do what a lot of law enforcement agencies can't. And, and when I mean that, Stevie, you'll know what I mean, and Morgan, probably you as well with, with Kansas State. It's tough to go and buy machined, you know, uh, Intel-based computer programs that you have to keep up with, right? Because one, they cost a lot of money, as we learned at DEA, Steve, right? And then you buy a contract, then the company goes out of out of out of uh, business, and then you don't have anybody smart enough in your law enforcement agency to keep up with 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 the thing. At Walmart. That they put together the things that we give law enforcement. I've had U.S. attorneys literally send me letters saying I'd never in in my imagination would have thought that uh, Walmart could have helped us solve a caper. So it's 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 pretty cool. The commitment is uh, both feet in. Commitment to the commitment to the community. You can't beat that. Yeah. No. It, it's it's it 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 it's pretty daggone. Uh, Impressive, uh, remarkable uh, place. Yep. All right. Well, look, this right. is us saluting you, soldier. Thank you for a job well done. Merry Christmas, because like I said this is the last thing we're recording. So, Merry Christmas to both of you. Um, have a be safe out there. And re- last thing, real quickly, these days, where are you hanging your hat at uh, there, Matt? What state are you in? I'm I'm in uh, I'm in Northwest Arkansas. So I work out of the home office, and uh, I've got a. My, uh, I'm a I'm a new grandfather from two months ago. Oh, for my, uh My oldest son, who uh, has actually follow, followed in my uh, footsteps and is a DEA agent uh, here in Arkansas. Well, I'll tell you, so, that's why I was asking, because I can tell you right now, there's one thing Arkansas, or there's one thing that Walmart is not able to solve in Arkansas. It's Arkansas college football. So um. yeah, <laughs> we had to we had to go there. And let me tell you, in the state of Arkansas, when there's no other sports teams and professional teams, 
a lot, a lot of effort goes into that, and it's uh, it was it was pretty disappointing, pretty disappointing season. A good friend of mine is a former Arkansas State Police uh, lawyer for the Justice Department. I watch him on Facebook. He just <laughs> it's the team everybody loves to hate, but he's a diehard, you know, uh, yeah. you know, razor Razorback back fan, and yeah. you can call the hogs. So have you learned to call the hogs? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it, it gets it, it is a it's a big to do around here on Saturdays. Well, and, uh, you can take us out of this episode by calling the hogs. Call the hogs for us, Matt. <laughs> I can't. I can't do oh, it. Come on. <laughs> I, I I truly can't. You can't or you won't. There's a difference. No, I can't. <laughs> I, I really. I, I I'm not a. I'm I'm not a a, a, a lifelong hog fan. So okay, we're gonna have to work I, on I, that. I can probably follow along. Uh, but I, I, I truly can't, uh, I can't call him. So. All right. Well, you will by the next episode, we have you on again. You're going to be ready for that. Okay. All right. Morgan, it was a pleasure to meet you. It really was. And I, uh, again, I, I started off with this, uh, I, uh, all the accolades I give Stevie, um, I, I feel your pain on a regular basis. Bro. Dude, bro, <laughs> we, we got some talking to do after this episode is you, over. You so both are so I got a lot more stories too. So you both are so fortunate. We're going to go into the skiff with those stories and see which ones we can pull out. So you guys don't go anywhere. Everybody else, you guys hang on. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Concrete. How many? 600 pounds of concrete. I have dug shit out of yards, buried. 600 pounds of concrete. Oh my God. How is that? I still don't understand why did they thought think they they needed that much concrete? <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> to stick it in the middle of the freaking desert, you know, where they were. It's kind of like, oh, well, nothing to see here. Just a big thing of concrete. You know, nobody will notice that just blends right into the scenery. Oh, well, maybe they worry about some of the critters out there in the desert digging the body up. I don't know. But still 600 pounds? That seems a little overboard. You know, and... Just it shows you that criminals aren't that bright. They go to all of that work. That it was, it would have been easier to turn yourself in, go to court. You would have already been on probation instead of all the work you went to. <laughs> well, you know, parole. and through you know good investigators doing their job, you know, they were able to come up with all the evidence that just, I mean, sealed the case. So Matt ah. is one hell of an investigator. You know, he's, he's got that, you can probably tell from his interview, he's, he's a good old country boy, but he's just got that personality that you like the guy when you talk to him. Even if, if you're the bad guy and he's the good guy, he still has a very persuasive personality, a charismatic personality. So this is a blast having Matt on here, man. Thank you very much, yeah. brother. And think about this too. Think about him and his team, what they're doing for Walmart globally. Oh yeah. You know? Oh Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I mean, did you ever in your life dream that in retirement from law enforcement or, or whatever position you have that you would work at Walmart? I thought I might be a greeter. Greeter. That's what I'm saying. Most guys retire there. Hey, I'm, how you doing? You know, welcome, welcome to Walmart. Walmart. <laughs> Man, you impressed me, son. You done good. Yeah, I bet I bet they still make him greet people at the door, though, even at headquarters. Hey, Matt, come here. You know, He's a big boy. You won't miss him. <laughs> you won't miss him. Well, hey, guys, well, that brings – hopefully you guys like that. Just head on over to Apple Spotify. Remember, you can leave comments on Spotify. So, But give us those five stars. Let us know what you think about it. It's magic. It's Disney. Uh, and if you, uh, if you listen to our, our Game of Crimes, you can't make this shit up. Maybe it's a small world, too. You just never know where you're going to find some of this stuff. <laughs> 
you have to listen <laughs> to the episode to, to find that. out why that's so funny. Yeah. That's also, right. head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more information about the show. That's where we'll put stuff. You know, our, our books. We've got a ton of books on there too that uh, people on our uh, that have been our guests have written. So you got to go check that out. Also, follow us on that thing they call social media on the interwebs at Game of Crimes on Twitter, now known as X. Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook. Game of Crimes Podcast uh, on Instagram. Also, type in Game of Crimes fans on Facebook and our favorite Mafia Queen, Sandy Salvato, who rules with an iron fist and the velvet glove will let you and allow you entrance into the inner sanctum where we have all sorts of unclassified, or classified, I should say. It's classified until you join and then you get to participate in the fun. But uh, until then, we can't right. tell you. If we tell That's you, right. we got to kill you. There you go. It's, it is a lot of fun, I got to say. Love those people. And what else do we love? We love Patreon. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Like yeah. I said, if you want to find out what It's a Small World means, if you want to find out where not to hide your weapon if you're going to get arrested by the popo. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to find it. <laughs> they're going to find it one way or the other. This, these are these are life lessons for people. If you're thinking about a life of crime, listen to us. We're going to put you on the straight and narrow. So just come join us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where you need to be. We've got three different levels, something to suit all tastes, all budgets, all families. You know, just come visit us, Game of Crimes, over at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. So yep. guess what, Murph? It's what? time to bring this to an end. And guess how there we bring we this to an end? How do we? We bring it to an end by me saying to you. Thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. The very heavy, if you're going to bury a body in 600 pounds of concrete, Gameville Crimes. <laughs> <laughs>